Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires Born and raised in a, uh, in a Hindu communist family in the then third world country, India. Raised through the childhood, grew through the childhood, into the adulthood, always being uh, uh, compared and uh, evaluated against the yardsticks, what you know, the folks around, like your neighbors, uh, your real relatives. So self-inflicted uh, comparison was quite natural to me, and uh, I found that okay, it, it was. It, 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 I never actually recognized or realized that how unhealthy it is, or how alarmingly unhealthy it is. Over the years, also like before getting to the faith, I was I like I mean grew into like a, quite an arrogant atheist. So had many challenges around that, but I was told that okay, if you submit yourself uh, to the Lord. Uh, you know, you will be able to overcome this brokenness. But this is a constant battle that I went around. So I, I continued in a very, in a subtle way. Uh, and here comes a new, uh, you know, um, a new platform to basically the LinkedIn, what you call the social media platform. Although I'm not in social media barring that, which actually got me exposed to, you know, on a single pin window, you get to see all other people, how they're doing, what they're achieving professionally and, and all that. Over the years, professionally, I had a very, over a very short span of time, I really went to a place where I became a GOAT engineering leader, got accolades, recommendations, blah, 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 and all that. But start, what started happening with me is that, that with this comparison in place, I started belittling everything that I have achieved in the past, right? By his grace or by whatever the arrogance used to tell me that it's just by me. But in any case for that matter, I just started belittling everything that I achieved over the period. So it spiraled down to me so heavily that it, it, it broke my confidence, it broke my hope. It started shattering me here and there. And I finally, it came to a point uh, like a couple of months back, it's just a very recent story that when I actually realized and recognized that how, how bad what I was doing when it comes to my uh, comparison. Uh, I lost my job, uh, I was jobless, uh, didn't know what to do next because I was still trying to find out what's the next purposeful thing that I should do. And uh, a big realization was this, that uh, the thing which I was indulging in, that's basically the comparison, was definitely, was definitely responsible for that. And this realization would not have happened had I not really, really put up myself, opened myself up to the Father and say that, okay, just, just, just lead me through. I'm done. I'm done with comparing. I'm, I'm done with many of my, uh, you know, other brokenness that I have. It's all by Him who gave me the power and the strength to actually overcome that brokenness that I have. I'm still not, I'm, I would just reiterate the fact that it's not that I am not going to that platform anymore. I still do go. I still do see people around, but it does not affect me any further. Well, good morning. 
Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Matt Van Cleve, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this is week two in our series, I'm Done With That, uh, where we're learning how to be a bunch of quitters. Uh, no, no one wants to be a quitter, but sometimes we have to be done with something in order to make space for what God wants uh, in our lives. And today we're talking about being done with complaining, or I'm comparing. Um, last week was complaining, if you missed that. Uh, to start today, I want you to imagine something. Imagine a Bay Area parent scheduling a meeting with their child's teacher and asking, uh, how's my child doing? And the teacher says, you know, about average, your child is right in the middle of the pack. And then that parent goes to their child's coach, you know, how's my child doing? And the coach says, you know, about average, you know, half the kids are better, half the kids are worse. And then the parent goes to their child's tutor, uh, who specializes in preparing eight-year-olds for their SATs. Uh, how's my child doing? And the tutor says, you know, I think you can expect your child to be right about at the 50th percentile. Now, what are the odds that a Bay Area parent would respond to that by saying, wow, that's great. I have a normal child. Like, my child is right in the sweet spot of God's bell curve. Not likely, right? It turns out when we ask that question, how is my child doing, there's always a little rider attached to that phrase compared to the other kids. We have a way of measuring the performance, the identity, even the value and worth of our kids compared to the other kids. When I was in first grade, we got assigned to reading groups based on how well we could read compared to the other kids in the class. Uh, now, they would never tell you this, but we could tell uh, because the groups were named for birds. Uh, there were the eagles, the robins, and the pigeons. <laughs> and uh, if you were assigned to the pigeons group, you knew you, knew you were not excelling in reading. <laughs> and I can still remember, I think I was in second grade, and we had taken this standardized test, and my teacher posted on the chalkboard uh, the score my sister got. A year earlier, my sister is a year older than me in school, and then my score, which was considerably lower, and asked me in front of the whole class, why did your sister do so much better than you did? And I got so mad. But what's interesting is, I didn't get mad at the teacher. Who did I get mad at? My sister. Like, she had deliberately done well on the test just to make me look bad. You see, there's this strange thing. We have a way of identifying our worth, uh, our performance, our value, based on how we do compared to the other kids. Malcolm Gladwell writes about this in his book, David and Goliath. It's a great book. I encourage you to read if you're a parent. Uh, this is what he wrote about a girl who excelled in math and science. Uh, Sachs, so her name's Carolyn Sachs. Sachs sailed through high school at the top of her class. She took a political science course at a nearby college while she was still in high school, as well as an advanced calculus course at the local community college. She got A's in both, as well as an A in every class she took in high school. Uh, she got perfect scores on every one of her advanced placement pre-college courses. When it was time for her to select a college, she went to Brown University. Only at Brown, she would not be the top of the class. Uh, and she faced that stark reality in her organic chemistry class when she received the first B of her academic career. Um, and this is what she said about the class. You memorize how a concept works, and then they give you a molecule, 
you've never seen before, and they ask you to make another one you've never seen before, and you have to get this from this thing, you know, from, you have to get this thing from this thing, and there are people who just think that way, and in five minutes are done, they're the curve busters. And then there are people who, through an amazing amount of hard work, train themselves to think that way. And she says, I worked so hard and I never got it down. And so after that experience, she decided that she shouldn't pursue science any further. Um, and the tragic part was that she loved science. And she talked about her abandonment of her first love, and she mourned all the courses that she would have loved to have taken uh, but wouldn't take physiology, infectious disease, biology, math. Now, it shouldn't have mattered how she did in organic chemistry. I mean, she never wanted to be an organic chemist. Uh, it was just a course. Lots of people find organic chemistry impossible. This is what Gladwell writes. If you were to rank all the students in the world who are taking organic chemistry, Sachs would probably be in the top 99th percentile. But the problem was Sachs wasn't comparing herself to all the students in the world taking organic chemistry. She was comparing herself to her fellow students at Brown. She was a little fish in one of the deepest and most competitive ponds in the country. And the experience of comparing herself to all the other brilliant fish shattered her confidence. It made her feel stupid, even though she wasn't stupid at all. It's a great example of the destructive power of comparison. Now, let me say this. Comparing myself isn't, uh, comparing itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's inevitable. Uh, it's a part of learning. That's how children figure out, you know, this circle is bigger than that circle. A rabbit runs faster than a turtle. I can get a better deal on jewelry for my wife's birthday from Claire's than Tiffany's. You know, <laughs> we learn by comparing. But when I compare myself to another person, my ego gets involved and my ego wants to be exalted over another person. My ego feels like I'm going to be diminished if this other person is enhanced. My ego whispers to me about envy and jealousy and makes me competitive. When I compare myself to other people, if I do better than them, then I feel superior and puffed up. And that kills love in me. And if I grade myself worse, then I feel inferior and unworthy, and that kills love in me. And we do this to ourselves. It's not even teachers or parents doing it anymore. We do it to ourselves. We make ourselves miserable. And because we don't want any of this series to be just abstract or hypothetical, I want to invite you to reflect for a moment on yourself and whether or not you do this. Um, and we're just going to do a mass confession. If you've ever compared yourself I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. So if you've ever compared yourself to someone else on the basis of looks, like he or she is better looking than me, or has better hair, or teeth, or physique, or intelligence, or grades, GPA, if you've ever compared your career to someone else's career, or your house to someone else's, or your car to someone else's car, your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse to someone else's, your kids, how you're doing as a parent, even your spiritual life. If you've ever in any way compared yourself to anyone else, would you just raise your hands real high right now? That's what I thought. I mean, it's a sickness around here. How many of you would say, yeah, I'm, you know, I've done that, but I'm probably better at it than most people? <laughs> it's this thing that is just toxic where we live. We all want to know, am I in the eagles or the robins or the pigeons? 
And this actually goes way back and runs all through the Bible. And so what I want to do in this message is, first of all, walk through several scenes in Scripture and in life and look at why it is that comparing myself to other people is such a miserable, toxic, anti-kingdom way to live. And this is huge, especially in the Bay Area where we live. And then we'll look at how to get liberated from that. How can I live in the incomparable kingdom of God? You know, this sin, comparing myself to other people, is actually right at the root of the second sin in the Bible. Uh, A lot of you will know the first sin, Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit from the tree. Uh, The second sin involves two brothers, Cain and Abel. And this is what we're told in Genesis. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the first thing we wonder when we read this story is, why is Abel's offering looked upon with favor and Cain's was not? Well, most likely it goes back to that word firstborn. Uh, Abel offered some of the firstborn. And we've talked about this when we've talked about giving and generosity and even tithing. Uh, that we don't give our tithes and offerings. Uh, we bring to God our tithes and offerings. They already belong to God. Um, God loves it when we make generosity a priority. And so he would teach his people to become generous with not just some, but with the first fruits of the harvest or the firstborn of the flock. So right off the top, the first thing I do is say, God, here is the tithe. It's yours. Um, I want to make generosity a priority. And Abel does that, but Cain doesn't. He just brings some. And the implication is he's doing it out of obligation or with a reluctant heart or because he thinks he has to. Abel experiences what it is that generosity does in a heart. He trusts God and he loves God and he's living in the reality of God's favor and dependence on God and God loves that. God loves generosity because God is a generous God. And Cain shuts himself off from that. Cain sees this joy in Abel, and it makes him angry. It's so interesting. Cain gets angry, not at himself. He doesn't say, come on, Cain, you could do better than this. He doesn't even get angry at God. He gets mad at his brother Abel. He thinks, if Abel wasn't around, I wouldn't feel this pain. This is comparison. Uh, work in the very beginning of the Bible. So interesting. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's a fascinating story. God kind of plays therapist to Cain. You know, there were no therapists back then, so God is his therapist. And he asks him, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But Cain will not respond to any of these questions. What happens for Cain is he dehumanizes Abel and doesn't see him as a brother. He just sees him as a problem. And the real question God is posing, and it's a really good one for you and me when we start comparing ourselves, is what do I really want? You see, what Cain wanted at his best self, like in his truest self, was to be a generous person. 
He would want to trust God. He would want to love his brother and be a good brother himself. But Cain doesn't want to answer these questions. And you know, we're that way too. In our best selves, we would want to be noble. We want to be noble. But over time, we quit looking at our best best selves. We quit asking those questions. It's so fascinating. The text says that God asked Cain three of uh, these questions, but Cain does, doesn't respond back to God. Now, here's the next verse. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Uh, and there's a world of hurt and sin in that one statement. Now, for the first time, Cain has to deceive his brother. He has to say this like it's what brothers do. He has to teach his face and his tone, the tone of his voice and his body to deceive his brother. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And this theme of deception and falsehood in comparison runs all throughout the Bible. Neil Plantiga, he wrote a a book called A Brevity of Sin. Uh, He tells a story of these two women in Iowa, Cindy and Sonia. Uh, They were both lovely. Uh, They would sometimes compete in beauty pageants. Uh, Cindy was Miss Harvest Queen. Uh, Sonia was Homecoming Queen. Uh, They both liked the same guy, a guy named Jim. Jim ultimately rejected Cindy and married Sonia, and it just festered. It killed Cindy. And she couldn't stand to think of her rival getting what she wanted and being happy, and so she took a leather belt, and one night, Miss Harvest Queen strangled the homecoming queen, and the whole town was left devastated. All through the human race and all through the Bible, this toxicity of, how come you have what I want? It just runs. And so two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, are estranged from each other. And then the next generation, two more brothers, Jacob and Esau, are estranged from each other. And this is what the writer of Scripture says about them. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was, con- was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who was his father, uh, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah, his mom, loved Jacob. And there's a world of hurt in those words. And parents will do this weird kind of thing. You know, he's the athletic one. You know, he's the outdoorsy one. He's the quiet one. Like, why would I craft my child's identity based on what their brother or sister happened to be like? So then if you get a clumsy sibling, you know, you're the athletic one. But if you get a really coordinated one, then you're not the athletic one. Parents do this all the time, and it just kills them. And then there's Joseph and his brothers and envy and the rivalry there. I mean, this just runs all through Scripture. Another story involves Israel's king, the first king, Saul. Uh, We're told about Saul that he was, another comparative phrase, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was was a head taller than anyone, anyone else. And he was the king. And he named David to be a warrior, to be a general for him. And they go out to battle, and the battle goes really well. And here's what happens next. The woman came out from all the towns of Israel to meet, the, to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with trembles and lyres. And they danced, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. Why was Saul so angry? Well, for one thing, it's a dumb song, right? I mean, it's not a very creative song. Uh, But that's not the reason Saul is so angry. Here's the reason. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, 
but me with only thousands, what more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye or a jealous eye on David. The Hebrew language often will express things very concretely, very physically. So Saul isn't just jealous, but he keeps a jealous eye on David. Comparison is that way. When I start to get jealous, I look at you differently. I don't see my brother. I don't see someone I love. I just see someone who creates this pain inside of me. So why are you so angry, Saul? Well, I'm afraid. You know, what could he get more than the kingdom? There's something precious at risk. You know, in the kingdom of God with Jesus, nothing precious is ever at risk. But there's this comparison and envy. Wherever there is comparison and envy, there will be fear. Why are you so angry, Saul? I'm offended. They've credited David with 10,000s and me with only thousands. You're kidding me, Saul? Like, who are they? Well, everyone. Saul, why do you care what everyone thinks? Like, you're the king. You're the man. Like, David reports to you. If he wins, you win. Saul is so consumed with envy that eventually tries to kill David. And of course, this is often the way it works in life. The very thing Saul fears most of all, the loss of his kingdom, is what ends up happening precisely because of this grasping and clutching and jealous comparative way that Saul lives his life. It'll kill you. It does all the time. But there's another way. There's a better way. So let's turn to the New Testament real quick. We're told there's a man sent from God whose name was John the Baptist, and he has a message, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. And then one day John sees Jesus and says to people who see him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then people begin going to Jesus. And then the strangest thing happens. Some of John's disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. It's very interesting. John has disciples just like Jesus has disciples. Uh, John is called rabbi just like Jesus is called rabbi. John uh, baptized people just as now Jesus' followers are baptizing people. And John's disciples say, hey, remember, we used to be number one. Like we were the most prominent. Everyone was coming to us. Now Jesus, this guy you baptized, is becoming more popular than you are and everyone is going to see him. The more people who go to see you, the more important you are. You know, we're your disciples and so if you're becoming less important, then we're going to be less important and we don't like this. So you better do some kind of uh, something to recapture market share. This comparison deal goes on even in spiritual arenas, even in ministry. A number of year ago, years ago, when I was first starting, uh, we were first starting Blue Oaks, uh, I was at a pastor's conference, and during one of the breaks, I was talking with a couple other pastors from other churches, and one of them said to the other, uh, how's your church going? And for those of you who don't know, that's pastor talk for how many people attend your church. Um, it's pastor talk for how important are you? Like, will I get status by hanging out with you? And the first pastor said, you know, about 1,000 people, something like that. How's your church? And the second guy said, we have about 1,200 people or so. 
And I knew what was coming next. You know, we had just started Blue Oaks, and so we had maybe like 250 people or something like that. And my immediate thought was, I'm going to say we're like 300 people. Because, you know, that'll sound so much more impressive than uh, 250 people. And then you know how your mind kind of works in a moment like that. I thought to myself, really? I don't even know these guys. Like, I'm never going to see these guys again in my life. Like, do I really want to give up my integrity, which is all I have really, for the sake of the status gained by 50 lousy people? And so I said, we're about 2,000. You know, <laughs> I figured if I'm going to sacrifice my integrity, I might as well make it worthwhile. I remember in a denomination, there were a bunch of churches, uh, kind of older churches, but there were larger churches in their denomination, and they would gather together, and they called themselves the tall steeple churches. Does anyone notice there are not a lot of steeples being built in the U.S. anymore? I mean, it would be hard to combine grandiosity and irrelevance more succinctly in a single phrase. And John the Baptist's disciples, they say, you know, we are the tall steeple ministry, and now everyone is going to him. And John's response is unbelievable. Look what John says. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, uh, tends to, uh, attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater I must become less. I mean, and that has kingdom written all over it. You know, don't worry about who's in the eagles or who's in the robins or who's in the pigeons. He says, I know who I am. And I know, and that's the beginning of it. I know who I am. And I know who I am not. I am not the Messiah. It's not me. It's a really good place to start. Would you turn to the person next to you and just say to them, I am not the Messiah. Or you can say, you are not the Messiah, whichever one would be most helpful. <laughs> Knowing that's not who I am, then John talks about who he is. And he uses this remarkable picture. He says, I told you I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the groom. And he's using here an image uh, in the Hebrew language uh, for weddings. Uh, there would be a character who had an official role uh, something like uh, a best man in our weddings today. The Hebrew word for this was a shoshben. He was a, a friend of the groom. He would provide a lot of the ceremonial functions that a best man would. And then his, the final task of the shoshben was he would stand in front of the bridal tent where the bride would be inside at the end of the day's festivities. He would stand guard there so that no one could go to the bride until the bridegroom came. And it would be dark. And so he would hear the sound of the groom's voice. And when he heard the sound of the groom's voice, his final task was to step aside so the groom could go into the tent and be with the bride. And then he would have, he would have joy knowing, I did my job. I helped my friend, and now the groom and the bride are together. And John says, that's me. I'm not the groom. The bride belongs to him. The church belongs to Jesus. She's not mine. The people aren't mine. And if I grab for the joy that belongs to him, I will not get his joy and I will actually lose my joy. So don't think that when all the other people are going to Jesus instead of me, that it's causing me to lose my joy. My joy is fulfilled. I am the friend of the groom and I'm so glad the groom is here. By the way, as a church, 
We want to reach every single person for Jesus Christ that we can. But not only that, you know, someone was talking to me about other churches and said something about the competition. Uh, Other churches are not the competition. Thank God for every church in the Bay Area that preaches Jesus. The more God breathes life into his church, whatever church, wherever that church is, the better it is. And then John has this amazing statement, he must become greater and I must become less. In other words, my life is not centered in me. And this is an important thing to understand about the way life works. The more my ego is at the center of my life's purpose, the more miserable I will be. The more more that God is at the center of my life, there's this strange paradox When I die to my ego, when I put God in the center of my life, the greater my life and the greater uh, the world. I must become less. He must become greater. That's the kingdom. I mean, that's life. By way of contrast, there was a movie, and some of you may have seen it a decade or two ago, called Amadeus. Uh, It's this amazing story of a court musician by the name of uh, Salieri. Um, He's very gifted, uh, very competent, but he recognizes that Mozart is a genius. Mozart is the obvious, uh, obnoxious character, and it grates at him that God made Mozart a genius and not him. And he's convinced, he's convinced that God has done him wrong uh, because he cannot be happy while Mozart is in the world. And this is, what he says about, this is what he says to God. From now on, we are enemies, you and me, because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and gave for me... The reward, only the ability to to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you, I swear to it. And the reality is, is that Celieri had amazing gifts that put him in the top one-tenth of one percent. I mean, he was, it was an amazing privilege that he had. And he also could have been given this gift of recognizing the greatness in Mozart, And he could have said, you know, what a great thing it is to live in this world where there is Mozart. And we, as, you know, this world get to listen to it and we get to love this music that Mozart uh, composes. But all he could see was, I'm not Mozart and God has wronged me. And the idea that he might find joy in humbling himself and being able to applaud the greatness of someone else just never even occurred to him. And then at the end of the movie, it's just chilling Salieri is with a priest and he's making this accusation against God and he's convinced in his mind that it's unanswerable, that he is right and that God has done him wrong. And he says to the priest, you're a mediocrity, but don't worry, I'm your champion. I am the patron saint of mediocrities. And then he's wheeled out into this asylum for the insane, saying, I absolve you of your mediocrity. You see, we live in this crazy world. I have to compare myself. I have to make sure I'm in the eagles. So how do I live another way? Here are a couple of questions uh, to take home with you if you're taking notes. One is, who am I comparing myself to? And I just invite you to think about this one. I probably won't compare myself uh, financially to Jeff Bezos or someone like that, It'll be a classmate or a person in the next office or the person uh, next door or down the street, you know, someone close by. Just be real honest about that. Like, ask the questions God asked of Cain. Like, why am I angry? 
What is it that I really want? Who would my best self be? And then what's the joy God has for me? You know, what are the gifts that God has given to me? What's the task God has assigned to me? God hasn't asked me to be someone else. I don't have to be Mozart or David or Saul. I just have to be me. And God is just calling you to be you. I promise you there is joy in loving the people around you and doing the things that God has called you to do and giving the gifts that God has called you to give and stretching the gifts that God has given you to stretch. I promise you there is joy in it. And then if you want a little extra credit work, anyone wants some extra credit work? Um, take the person you're most prone to envy, the person you're most prone to compare yourself to, and pray that God would cause them to succeed this week like never before. Just say, God, would you let that person soar? Like, would you unleash their gifts in unprecedented ways? And of course, you won't be able to do this on your own power. Uh, we don't do this on our own strength. We have to ask Jesus, will you help me with this? I have to ask him that all the time. Every time I'm tempted to compare myself to someone else, that should be this little prompt in me. Say, I need to pray. And by the way, Jesus knows all about envy. Uh, you may have never noticed this tiny little phrase. This is from the story of Jesus. For he, Pilate, knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Envy is what killed Jesus. Everyone is going to him. You know, that means we're not going uh, to have the popularity you know, that, they're not cheering us on anymore, so let's just kill him. It's the story of the human race. I want to share, share with you one last story. It's a short story. I love this story. It's kind of funny, actually. It's a great hope and a great call in it. It's the very end of the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus is restoring Peter, and Peter is so human. Peter is messed up in every way possible. Um, and Jesus is kind of recommissioning him and tells him, feed my sheep. And then at the end, the very end, he tells Peter the kind of death that Peter is going to die, and Peter is going to suffer. It's going to be very hard, but he's going to glorify God with it, and there's going to be uh, an, an eternity of joy that lies before Peter. And Jesus tells Peter all about this. And then this weird thing happens. Peter sees John going by, and then Peter saw him. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Now, there's a little dynamic going on with Peter and John that you need to know about. Uh, John, in this gospel, is called the disciple Jesus loved. Uh, Peter is not. At the Last Supper, we're told that John re uh, reclined next to Jesus at the table. So John is in the seat of honor. At the resurrection, we're told John and Peter race each other to the tomb. We're actually told someone kept track of this. John got there first. So they're having a race. Who can make it to the tomb first? John outruns Peter. After the resurrection, they're going, to, they're going out and going fishing, and the, this figure comes to them. And John says to Peter, it's the Lord. In other words, Peter doesn't recognize who it is. John recognizes and says to Peter, hey, Peter, I know who it is. Over and over and over again, it's John, 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 John. And Peter sees him after being told this, Lord, what about him? It's always John, 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 John. He's your favorite. He's the disciple you love. If you're so crazy about John, well, why don't you make him Pope? Is that kind of thing. And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. 
If you keep your eyes on him, you will be miserable. If you keep your eyes on me, you will be filled with joy. Follow Jesus. I mean, that's what leads to life. That's what you have to do to be done with uh, comparing. All right, let's pray. And I would just invite you to uh, take a moment of self-examination. You know, doing real honest self-examination is a very important part of our spiritual life and our spiritual growth and often is neglected in our day. And so would you just take a moment, just real honest, just between you and God. Uh, Who are you likely to compare yourself to? It could be someone who seems more successful or more attractive or has a better family. Would you just take a moment and just tell your heavenly father about it? I mean, he already knows. He's not going to be surprised by it. And then would you just ask him for help? God, you know how this little worm gets inside of me and it just eats away at my soul. And I know it keeps me from love and it keeps me from joy. It keeps me from uh, being grateful. God, would you liberate me? Would you free me? Would you deliver me from it? And God, we thank you for Jesus and our prayers that he would grow greater and we would grow less, that you would be more and more at the center of our lives and that our ego and our sin would just die. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, If you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 845, 10, and 1115. Uh, For directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.